Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambutasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambutasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambutasa. As probably quite a few of you know, today is a kind of special day in the Buddhist calendar. And according to the uh, old Indian calendar, the, the months of um, Asala, and that's the, the beginning of the rainy season in, in, in India. And it's also you know, the beginning of the what's called sometimes the Buddhist length or the rains retreat or in Thai it's called Pansa and it's sometimes also called Vasa and it's like a three months period where you know monks and nuns usually try you know to put a bit more emphasis on, on practice and maybe you know, sometimes do some extra renunciant practices. And because at that time, because it was raining so heavily in India, the Buddha just, you know, made sure that his monks and nuns wouldn't have to travel during those three months. And that, that was the time when the first monasteries uh, were built, because for the rest of the year they would wander. But for these three months, they weren't allowed to wander. And one reason was also that, you know, he wanted to make sure that they don't um, uh, destroy living creatures, I've, I've read at least, because they would all, you know, come out when there's a lot of water. And if they go over the fields, they, they would damage them. And... Also, this uh, Asala Puja is the day when the Buddha gave his first, you know, structured sermon. This was ungefähr uh, about two months after his enlightenment, and the enlightenment was on Vesak. That was the full moon of May. So two months later, he gave the first sermon, and his enlightenment happened, as you all know, in Bodhgaya. And, you know, and after he had sat, you know, under the tree for about a week or so, he was, he was starting to think about, you know, should he go and teach this, what he has been um, realizing, or should he not? Because in the beginning, it, it, uh, he assumed that it was much too subtle, uh, a teaching, and nobody would be able to understand it. So he was thinking he wouldn't go out and teach it. But then the chant you have just been doing before is actually exactly that chant where Brahma Sahampati God, the Brahma God, came down from the heavens and he was requesting him to teach out of compassion for those with a little dust in their eyes. So he was saying that there is beings who would be able to benefit from this teaching, who have enough you know, ripeness of faculties that they would be able to understand the teaching. And that's, you know, what you have been just doing is exactly that chant. So, 
after he you know, was requested by the Brahma Sahampati, he decided to teach. And then he was, you know, with his very developed mind, he was looking out and thinking, you know, to whom should he go first to give this teaching? And, and he was thinking first of his first two teachers he has been training with. And it turned out that both both has passed away, so he couldn't go to teach them because he thought they would be ripe for this. And then his mind, I come to his mind, you know, he could try to to find his five uh, friends he had been practicing together formally with, because he thought they might also be ready, you know, to benefit from this. So. And he, he knew that they were in Benares, what's called Varanasi today, in the in Saranath, which is near Benares, in the deer park. They were practicing there. So he started to walk towards Benares. It's about 150 miles from Bodhgaya. And it took him about two months to get there. And on the, on the way, when he was walking to Bodhgaya, he met one uh, naked ascetic wanderer who was called Upaka and he was very mm-hmm. impressed by the Buddha's presence and he he stopped him on the on the on the street on the on the path and he said to him you know who are you who is your teacher because he he would you know he was interested to know and then the Buddha never been thinking about how to teach he just said you know, I am the fully enlightened one, I am the Buddha, and this this wanderer wasn't quite sure if this is a, a person who is very conceited or somebody who really has insight. So he said, maybe, maybe not. And he, he, you know, they parted ways. And after that, it became clear to the Buddha this way of, you know, of expressing his teaching doesn't work. So he started to kind of reflect you know, how he should, you know, lay it out so people could really benefit from it. And and what we have been chanting tonight, Dhamma Chaka Bhavatana Sutta, that's, you know, what he came up with after consideration, you know, how to, how to present it. So he was, you know, on his way to, to Saranat, to the deer park, to, to see his five uh, former friends, you know, who had abandoned him, before his enlightenment, because they were, you know, thinking that he had, uh, you know, gone to to neglect his practice, because he had, after six years of very uh, austere aesthetic practices, he he came to the conclusion, you know, that mortifying and you know suppressing the body is not a way to enlightenment. And indulging in sense pleasures is as well not a way to enlightenment, but what he calls in his teaching, you know, the middle way, the noble eightfold path, that is the right way according to his own experience. So that's what he wanted to share. And then his five friends, you know, when they saw him coming from far, they were just, before they were saying, oh, you know, here is Godama Siddhartha coming, who has been you know, straying from the path. And when he is coming uh, to be with us, we won't make him a seat and we won't, you know, pay much attention to him because they wanted to show him that they didn't respect him any longer. 
But then when he draw, when he came nearer, they became aware of his um, the power of his presence and his radiance, and they couldn't help but you know getting up and and welcoming him and inviting him to teach. And that's when he gave this teaching. We have been chanting before about, and and I think you know what is the very important part is is that that he says you know there are two extremes because we should not be followed by one who has gone forth from the worldly life. And those two extremes are, as I said before, sensual indulgence or self-torment. And because by avoiding these two extremes, that the Thakata, that's the Buddha, has realized the middle way which gives vision and understanding and leads to peace, higher wisdom, enlightenment and Nibbana. So, you know, this uh, middle path which, which is between those two extremes, this is the way for the realization of uh, non-attachment. So, basically, you know, one way to, to express the middle way is, is the Noble Eightfold Path. This is, this is the way, you know, how we can cultivate the mind so it is able, you know, to completely let go of all um, the three, what's called the poisons, greed, hatred and delusion. And, uh, and how it is done, you know, in a, in a simple pattern is uh, we can compare that, you know, how, how we, if we want to grow a, a, a tree, for example, from a, from a little seed, the first thing, you know, we have to do is to, um, you know, decide for a piece of, of ground and then, you know, make a fence around that and, and make it very clear, you know, which, which piece of ground are we looking at, which piece of ground are we working with. And, and, then the, and then the fence around this piece of ground, this is like the five precepts or the first part, you know, of the Noble Eightfold Path, which is, can be divided into three groups. And the first group is called the Ethic Group or, or about the group about Sila. You know, this is the fence around the piece of, of um, ground we want to cultivate for you know, which we want to prepare and make ready so we can put a seed into it. So, you know, the five precepts are the perfect fence. And if you want to, you know, take more precepts, like eight precepts, ten precepts, or even more, that's fine too. But the five precepts basically are, you know, enough. And they bring our con conduct in, in harmony with the conduct of uh, an enlightened being. And so we're starting with that fence. And, you know, if we are living according to the five precepts, that's like, um, you know, starting to stop uh, certain unwholesome actions which uh, architect the mind and which bring a lot of uh, restlessness into our lives and uh, remorse. So, and after we have, you know, put up that fence around this uh, bit of land or a bit of ground, we can start to, um, you know, to weed and to, 
turn the earth around and and, and uh, start to really look what is there. Not you know not by suppressing what we find or by throwing it uh, out, but by just you know digging it into the earth and using it as a compost, using it uh, as a nourishment. And you know that can be uh, compared with with the second uh, group of the noble outfall past the the group about concentration or or samadhi. You know when we are not any longer. It's not only that we are not doing any unwholesome actions, but also we we kind of increasingly, you know, also um, let go of of wasting our energy, of wasting our time with with things which might not be particularly unwholesome in terms of, you know, breaking the precepts, but they are still distractions or they're still, you know, making our lives very complex and just, you know, wasting a lot of precious time. So the first one is, you know, the, the moral group or ethic group, and the second one is about concentration and with focusing on what really matters. And... Uh, and for that also we have to, you know, really look deeply at our lives and decide, you know, what we want to um, cultivate and what we don't want to cultivate. And, you know, and through focusing onto our lives, we, we start to uh, be able to discriminate between, you know, things which bring us happiness and things which bring us um, suffering and confusion. And that... You know, we can simply see by by really by really looking at, at the mind. And if we you know have established a certain uh, clarity of mind through keeping sila and through uh, you know starting to find out you know what is what, so to say, in in our lives, and we start to increasingly you know make wise choices, uh, conserve energy. And uh, then, you know, the mud of the mind starts to settle slowly but surely. And then, uh, you know, through that uh, clear seeing, we start to uh, make increasingly wiser choices. And, you know, have increasingly more ability to benefit other people as well and and through you know through the settling of of the uh, of the mind we we start to you know get increasingly more uh, space around our experience and we start to become aware of of awareness itself you know the the true nature of the mind and the whole reason you know why we are practicing because you know, the whole um, unfolding of the practice is that it, it starts with, uh, you know, making very clear boundaries in uh, with a mind and with a life, which is kind of more or less out of control. And through, you know, voluntarily making boundaries and, and uh, establishing certain guidelines, we are living according to those the mind starts to kind of settle down more and more. We start to see clearer what, you know, brings happiness and what brings suffering and uh, have increasingly more space around experience. And we start to notice more and more 
that uh, that uh, awareness itself is always there. It can be covered over, you know, by uh, afflictive emotions or by kind of very, you know, strong mind states. But when those mind states settle, awareness has always been there and always will be there. And we can, you know, train ourselves to notice it more and more. And through that noticing, you know, we we start to have more and more uh, trust in, in this ability to be able to know what's going on without getting carried away by it. So that, that strength of mind, you know, to be with what is without following it and without suppressing it becomes, you know, more and more uh, powerful uh, conviction in the mind. And, and through that, you know, we have an increasingly uh, greater ability to, to, to let go and to, to renounce, basically, uh, old habits of, uh, of speaking and of acting and even of thinking. You know, once we, we see that there's a choice here and we can also see, you know, how, how our ways of speaking, of acting and of thinking uh, produce results, you know, we, we start to have an insight into, in the law of karma and, and we get a greater and greater um, interest in, in taking uh, the opportunity to shape our lives in a way which we want to shape them. So we get, you know, more and more um, freedom, really, to to achieve results we, we want to see in our lives. And I think, you know, this sutta, the Dhamma Chakapavatana Sutta, is actually, you know, providing to those five ascetics who hear it, you know, and the full moon of, of the month of July, uh, basically, he 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 lays out the the ground plan for that in terms of the of the four noble truths. And you know the four noble truths are called noble truths because number one is you know if somebody really practices according to those four noble truths, they will sooner or later you know become a, a noble one, uh, somebody who has had insight into reality. And then through, you know, repet repetitive practice, you know, goes through the what's called like the four stages of um, enlightenment according to the Pali Canon. That's why they're called noble truths and they're also called noble truths because they're, you know, the same for everybody and they lead to um, liberation. The first of the four noble truths is, is you know, the clear seeing and the clear understanding of uh, that there is, how it's called in the in the scriptures, that there is dukkha, and sometimes it it is you know it's translated as suffering, but I think a more correct uh, translation would be that there is you know that there is unsatisfactoriness, because suffering you know is not inherent in experience, but if we are attaching the experience, then, you know, there is suffering. 
but if we're just you know aware of what's going on it's just unsatisfactory but not necessary suffering if we don't expect you know total everlasting satisfaction from any experience so suffering is optional and you know we can train ourselves uh, to let go of it and the whole teaching of the Four Noble Truths is, is aiming towards that. And also, you know, the whole, uh, the, the way how it's laid out, it's, it's, it's laid out according to, to the way um, doctors in the, in the times of the Buddha have been doing, um, they have been laying out their, their diagnosis. And the, the first... You know, the first of the Four Noble Truths is, is just, a, you know, somebody coming to a doctor and saying, you know, I have, I have a pain here. And then that's the first Noble Truth, the truth of, um, the truth of suffering or the truth of unsatisfactoriness. And then the second Noble Truth is, is the truth of the origin of suffering or that would be you know, the diagnosis the doctor would give after looking at, at the person and saying, you know, the virus you know, in your body or the, the, the reason for the illness in your body is, is attachment to me and man. That's the um, reason for the illness. And then after that, he would, he would uh, say the, the way to be healed from that illness is is uh, the realization of of letting go that's the that's the third noble truth and the fourth noble truth is the noble eightfold path or the you know the treatment plan or the medicine which the person has to take in order to be able to completely recover from the illness and if the person you know, is not following the noble eightfold path, not putting it into practice, not really you know, taking in the medicine in, in the prescribed way, the healing will not occur. So you know, just thinking about it and reading about the noble eightfold path is not enough. We have to really you know, experience it within ourselves, in our own you know, body and mind. And through that uh, experience and the depths of the experience, it's always you know in relationship to the depths of the experience, uh, attachment uh, falls away. But not you know through kind of forcing ourselves, but through really insight and to really bring it home into our own body and mind. So study alone is is. Uh, you know, not enough, and also, you know, doing it half-heartedly, meaning, you know, not knowing it, but really not acting on it, is, is not enough for healing to occur. We really have to, uh, you know, fully do it, and really um, bring it home. So, you know, and it all starts simply with, you know, becoming aware that, Everything what we do has a result. That we have a, a choice, you know, that we can um, act in harmony with what we want to see happening in our lives. And it might not immediately, you know, bear 
great fruit, but if we keep on going, you know, it will is accumulative basically. And you know, we can see we can see it in the present moment. For example, you know, it, it depends how you know how we are feeling in the present moment depends very much, you know, on what we have just done the moment before, basically. And then also, you know, when we meditate, we can also see habits in which we have been cultivating over a longer time, we become, you know, aware of that. Or even, you know, we can see, you know, very deeply ingrained habits which we might have been bringing even from another lifetime. It doesn't matter, you know, how how many lifetimes ago or how many minutes ago we have been creating a certain thought pattern, but what really matters is that as soon as if we become aware of it, uh, you know, we, we start to, you know, have a choice, actually. And, and through cultivating, you know, the mind, through the Noble Eightfold Path, we, we can, you know, start to act in a way which, which makes that, that choice uh, a reality in our lives. And, you know, that's what the word renunciation actually says, you know, because renunciation in the Pali language is, uh, is called nekama, and when you trans it's translated as non-addiction. Kamma is like sensual pleasures, and it's it's called non-addiction. You know, to have that choice to to not do something or do not say something. You know, it's it's almost like you know training uh, a, a little child. You know, or, or growing growing up, growing out of something by you know parenting ourselves basically you know because we have to uh, you know we can't just like beat the ego down or something or, or, or kill it off because it won't cooperate it will escape you know left and right what we what we have to do is to really get to know it very well and to treat it with uh, with uh, compassion and with um, with wisdom and to align ourselves in a, in a certain way with it, not in, in a stupid way, you know, by giving it everything it wants, but by giving it enough, you know, respect and, 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 and love so it cooperates. Like, you know, we, we uh, bring up a little child by by explaining things in a way and by by um, supporting it in, in, in a way so it is, is willing you know to to look closer and and willing to um, to trust and, and to open up and cooperate. And that's we have to do that with our own egos as well because if we don't do it we, it's Many of, of our, you know, maybe not so unwholesome desires will, will go underground and they won't be maybe mm -hmm. conscious, but they will do their, you know, influencing in a way which is unconscious and therefore it's much more destructive and much more unwholesome. 
And, you know, after the Buddha was uh, laying out the, the ground plan of the Four Noble Truths, one of the five ascetics, uh, Kuntanya, he understood, and that's what we also have been chanting, you know. At the, at the end, the Buddha was saying, yes, he, so he, he recognized that Kuntanya had understood the teaching, and he was very, you know, pleased about that. And then old devas, which were listening to the teaching, they were just shouting, you know, from one heaven to the next heaven, saying, you know, Kundanya has understood, and, you know, every, and the whole world systems were shaking and quaking, and many beings were rejoicing in the fact, you know, that the, that the wheel of the Dhamma had been set rolling again. And it's, you know, according to the historians, that has been happening exactly today, 2,600 years ago. So... It's a very auspicious day because of that. And, you know, it's still rolling, the Wheel of Dhamma, and uh, hoping it will roll for a long time because we really need it. It's a very uh, brilliant teaching. And then, you know, this uh, Kuntanya has then been asking the Buddha, you know, that he can become his disciple and the other four ascetics as well. So, and that was the first time, you know, that Buddha had been has been ordaining somebody as a, as a monk. And at that time, you know, there was not a, a very complicated ceremony. He just say "Come, Bhikkhu," and Bali "Ehi, Bhikkhu," and that was the ordination of those five monks. So this was the beginning of the sangha, and then. You know, it it all um, started to grow from there, and and I think after that, uh, I think Yasa was the was the next person who asked for ordination, and he brought I think sixty uh, friends with him. So then, quite quickly, you know, the, the sangha started to grow, and and later on, also you know, the Buddha also ordained nuns, bhikkhunis. And then the Sangha started to grow and still growing today. And the teaching is still alive. The minds have not changed very much. They have been, you know, becoming more complex, I think, in the last 2,600 years. But, you know, the what is needed for a, a complete letting go has not changed. And, you know, the, the medicine of the Buddha is as uh, valid and helpful today as it was then. It's just maybe that, that we are more neurotic than before, than people were 2,600 years ago. And, but on the other hand, you know, we have so many more um, means, you know, to, to access the teachings and we have... Uh, also, you know, uh, a lot of more opportunity that people can have education and, uh, you know, means to, to train their intellectual faculties. So we, we have, on one hand, we have more, you know, complexity to struggle with in order to let go. On the other hand, we have more support. So I think we, you know, still have... Uh, 
the same chance as, as people had in 2,600 years ago to realize, you know, the, the Four Noble Truths and to completely, you know, let go into that which is always present, which is always there, awareness. So it's not something which we have to, you know, make happen or which we have to create through, you know, doing something. It's, it's rather the opposite. It's, it's, it's about not doing something. It's about letting go and linking into that which is always present. In, in that context, I would say, you know, that renunciation is not just like a, a letting go, but it is also, um, you know, just a full being with what is and, and adding, you know, adding more uh, focus and more mindfulness to what's happening anyway into our in our lives and through this uh, paying attention and really penetrating into our experience bodily experience emotional experience and awareness itself you know it's all study starts to kind of fall away it starts to you know blossom i would say like like a flower because it's it's laws of nature you know which we don't have to make them happen but we just have to allow them to happen and not getting stuck in uh, in the past by constantly repeating the same patterns mindlessly over and over again. So the only thing what is really needed is to bring awareness, to bring mindfulness to what is happening within our bodies and minds and not stopping, you know, to, to bring the mind back to the present moment, not stopping to really look deeply. And then the process will take care of itself because it's, it's, a, it's a natural law. We don't have to make it happen. It's going to happen if we let it happen. And, you know, that can be done every moment and you know, there are enlightened beings on the planet, so it's, you know, because there has been a time, you know, when people were saying it's not anymore possible, it's not only possible at the time of the Buddha, but now it's not possible. This is not true because there are enlightened beings on the planet, so it can be done. And I think a day like this is is very good day to remember, you know, that we all have the same potential as the Buddha. And, you know, the Buddha is just uh, what's the difference, you know, between us and the Buddha is that he just really fully dedicated himself to the practice. And the good news is that he left us a, a ground plan behind so we don't have to invent the, you know, the wheel because we might not be able to do it anyway. But we can follow his guidelines and and the Four Noble Truths is a very uh, complete teaching. It has everything in it what is needed for enlightenment and it's the you know, it's the elephant footprint for the for the, all the teachings which he has given afterwards. It's, it's like it's the pinnacle of, of the teachings. Even it's actually sounds pretty simple and it is actually very simple but it's not easy to do but it can be done 
and in case you don't finish you know, this lifetime, you can finish in, in another one. So it's definitely worth trying. And um, yeah, I think I'm going to stop here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.